Good morning. My name is Emily rodenbeck Derza. Um, I grew up here at Island Bible Church, and my husband, Remy, and I and our family are um, serving as missionaries in Romania now. Um, our scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, and then verses 11 to 32. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And now verse 11. <clears throat> and Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to them, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. My heart. My heart. Thankfulness. Um. If you will turn in your copy of God's Word to Luke 15, that's where we'll be today. Uh, while you're turning, I want to tell you we begin our fall sermon series today with kind of a pre-series message um, to get us within the frame of Luke's larger gospel um, and Luke's portrait of Jesus, and then the heart of Luke's gospel. Um, want, want us to get that before we see that heart pulsate in the life and the early ministry of Jesus in Luke's chapter 3 through 9. That's what our series will be through those chapters. But we need to get the larger framework, and we need today particularly to hear the heart of Luke's gospel and the heart of our Savior that we will then see pulsate, I'm telling you, every single week through the series uh, as we go through it. The parable that Emily just read is actually the third of three parables uh, that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15. Uh, the common theme threaded through all three parables is the joy of recovering something that was, that's valuable but was lost. In, in all three parables, there's going to be joy in the recovery of something or someone valuable that was lost. And we can see in these how valuable a lost sheep, which means almost nothing to most of us, but to them it for sure was very valuable. A lost sheep, a lost coin, 
or lost sons. I'm putting an S on that on purpose. We can see how valuable lost sons are, lost coins are, lost sheep are, by the searches and the celebrations in each parable. Now, in our day, just like back then when Jesus told these stories, you and I can tell a lot about what a culture or a community or even a person deeply values by its searches and its its celebrations what a person goes after and what a person celebrates or what a community pursues and what a community throws a party over. You can tell a lot about what that culture, community, or person deeply values. Give you a couple of examples in our day. Now, I did um, a search on what are the most searched things on Google. Thankfully, the one that I picked up said this is a PG-13 version. So these are PG-13 options of the searches. The top two Google searches, again, why am I talking about this? Because what we value shows up in what we search for or what we celebrate, okay? The top two PG-13 Google searches are YouTube with 1,225,900,000 per month. Facebook is number two with 1,103,000,000 searches per month. Sadly, in the non-PG-13 world, one pornographic site alone was searched 3,320,000,000 times. That's only one pornographic site of however many. And then it seems like also, we've experienced this, right? You go and like, well, due to a shortage of workers, or short, to a supply chain, sort of like all that we run into, right? It may not surprise us that compared to those big numbers, YouTube, Facebook, and porn, only 150 million job searches a month on Google. No wonder it's hard to get, you know, supplies. No wonder it's hard at your job, those of you who are working and going, where are the other three people? Now I'm doing four jobs, right? But that tells us a lot about what we value by what we search for, what we're looking for. And really, those searches are really quests to get answers to our questions or satisfaction to what we would really deep down want. But we can also tell a lot about what a culture or community really values through what it celebrates, whether through parties or parades or social media posts, things that are celebrated, things that we have parades about, things that we have parties for, tell us a lot about what our culture really values. I've, I've heard um, of a culture el- elsewhere in the world, not in our uh, western neck of the woods, but this one culture highly values deception and betrayal. It's like one of their top values, deception and betrayal. And social status amongst this tribal people is ranked according to who's deceived others the most outlandishly. And evidently, this culture even has a festival that honors Judas the poster boy for betrayals. Now, I give you that wild example because what does that tell you? It tells you these are the things we celebrate. We give you status in our culture if you can pull one over on us. If you can betray us the most deeply, we're going to give you the Judas of the Year Award. And we can tell a lot about a culture and what it values, a community, what it holds dear, and even us as individual persons. We can say and espouse things that we value, but what we most deeply value will show up in those things we search after, clamor for, pursue, and celebrate. And Luke 15, if you look there, Luke 15, 11 begins this way. Next slide. There was a man who had two sons. Jesus begins one of his best-known parables this way. There was a man who had two sons. Often this is called the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the lost son. Again, I'm telling you, you've got to at least call it the parable of the lost sons. Put an S on the end of it. Because he is a man who had two sons. And there's much to say about both. More recently, Tim Keller and others have renamed this parable the prodigal God. And we think, well, that sounds dangerous. 
But really, prodigal means generous or lavish. The context will tell you what it means. We think of the first son, which we'll go through in just a moment, as prodigal, meaning he just kind of threw his money to the wind, threw himself and his morals to the wind. So we think of that as prodigal, but it depends on the context. And God himself, in this parable, we will see just how we celebrated it right here in the Lord's Supper just how generous and sacrificial and lavish is his grace and love. And so it could be more fittingly called that. And that certainly would fit that name, Prodigal God, or perhaps the great-hearted father, we could call it. That really fits because the real central person in this parable that we know pretty well The real central person in this story is the father. And Jesus told this parable in response to a key question about God that was rumbling in the hearts of his hearers on that day. In fact, I told you this is the third of three. If you throw the next slide up, the the other two are the lost sheep and the lost coin. And in all three of these, there are searches and there are celebrations. The first one, the lost sheep, Um, I want you to notice some progressions. We go from 99 to 1 to 9 to 1 to then I'm going to say 1 to 2, or you could say 1 to 1. But also we're going to go from out there in the pasture to the house to the home. We move closer to home. Jesus intensifies what he's trying to, to tell us, to teach us. He's trying to teach us something about the heart of God, and also then our hearts, and particularly what we really value. And part of what we really value will show up in those things that we quest after, or we have questions about, and we will search to find that answer. And in this parable that we'll go through today, of I'll call it the great-hearted father, or the two lost sons, we'll see this kind of search from both brothers we'll see particularly a search by the Father himself. I want you to notice, um, uh, in the, I'll just tell you this really quickly, the lost sheep, the shepherd loses. You know this, he go, leaves the 99 and he goes after the one. And the emphasis in that one is on the loss. This sheep is valuable enough that I'll leave the 99 behind and I'll go. The lost coin, this woman uh, in her house, which would have not been very lit, um, probably would have had straw on the mud floor, And she lost a coin in there. For her, that would have been extremely valuable, but the emphasis in that parable is on the search. She she gets after it and stays after it until she finds the coin. And in both of them, the response, the celebration, you have a search and you have a celebration. The celebration is one of joy. And we're even given a we're, we're even told that this gives us a hint of heaven. This gives us a hint of what heaven values deeply, greatly, what matters most to the heart of the Father. And then thirdly, as we move closer to home, the third parable we'll go through today, the emphasis is on the restoration. For that widow looking for the coin, the the woman looking for the coin, no effort is too great. For that shepherd, he's willing to risk whatever it takes for what he values. And in this third parable, where the emphasis is on restoration, The father is looking. The father initiates. The father goes after. And the father says, let's celebrate. Now, I want you to notice the original audience, verses 1 through 2, if you'll look in your copy of God's Word. It's also on the screen. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Just stop there for one second. That phrase shouldn't go together if we really think about it. The tax collectors and sinners, that's a, that's a way of saying, let me include all the folks who are on the fringes, all the folks who are immoral, self-indulgent, most of them addicts, A-D-D-I-C-T-S, addicts. What were they doing? They were all drawing near to Jesus. You would think, man, 
we know Jesus is God in the flesh. We know that he was perfect. He had no sin. They knew this, this man has authority. He seems to be from God. We can't put him in a nice, neat category, but, but we are drawn to him. I just want you to see the magnetism of Jesus that tax collectors and sinners, people you would despise or sideline, they are drawn to Jesus. Second verse, and the Pharisees. So these are both in the crowd. And the Pharisees and the scribes, as the experts in the law, grumbled, saying, this man, you can hear the despising of Jesus. This man receives sinners and eats with them. What are they saying? In that day, you don't eat with somebody. You don't have fellowship in, at the table with somebody unless you're willing to have that close association, unless you were pursuing that or unless you already had that. You don't just, you know, sit down at McDonald's with somebody. You have them into your house. You're reclining on each other. It's an intimate thing. And they said, what in the world? If you claim to represent God, and if you're demonstrating authority that we, we can't question all that you've already done by this time, we've, we've known you've healed, healed people and cast out demons. But if you're here to represent God, God wouldn't have much to do with or anything. He'd have distance from these folks. You're dining with them. I'm, I'm going through that because there's sinners and grumblers in the crowd. Those are the two audiences, and it's the sinners who are open to listen to him. And it's the grumblers, the Pharisees and the scribes. These were the religious leaders, the people we would have looked up to and said, man, that guy's got Leviticus down cold good because I can't read it. All right? That's how we would have looked at them. And they would have um, followed through on a lot of it. They would have had a sincere going after trying to obey God's word and insisting on others to do that. We would have esteemed them. But it's the Pharisee, the sinners who are open to listen, the Pharisees have contempt for him. This man receives sinners and eats with them. So with that condemning, smothering, Pharisees questioning, why does Jesus eat with sinners atmosphere? Jesus tells both groups what heaven searches for and celebrates. What matters most, being seen in its celebrations, what does heaven celebrate? What matters in God's kingdom? What place do sinners and righteous people have? What causes our Heavenly Father's heart to leap, to throb, and for angels to throw a party? Well, that question, really you could say it this way in the next slide. The key question that Jesus is really answering, knowing both groups, one group showing up going, I shouldn't be here, but I can't help it. I want to be here but I know God can see right through me. I know my sin. And the others who are like in a different place where the Pharisee prays, thank you, God, that I'm not like this person who think they've got it squared away with God. And that's the question. What is God's attitude toward sinners? Are they to be discarded or are they valuable? Are they to have any shot at relationship with him or should they be written off? And so that's how Jesus, he addresses both groups with what heaven searches for and celebrates. Before we zoom into this parable, I want you to take a left in Luke to chapter 1. <clears throat> because I want you to see why Luke wrote his gospel. Um, I want us to zoom out just for a moment to get, as we look at that question, what's God's heart and attitude towards sinners I want us to see that Luke, why did Luke write his gospel? It was because there were even bigger picture questions that surfaced the need for Luke to write a gospel. Others had written one. He lets us know that in the first few verses. He said, we've gotten it handed down to us from those who were eyewitnesses. They, they had, you know, they were around the fire with Jesus. They fished with Jesus. They saw him heal. They saw him deal with different folks leaders, centurions, prostitutes, tax collectors. They've seen 
all of that. <clears throat> but Dr. Luke, he is a doctor. Let's allow him to set the frame of why he intentionally wrote this gospel and get the picture of Jesus that he wants us to get. Luke 1, and on the screen it'll be verses 3 and 4. Verses 1 and 2, he says, there have been others who've written these. But then he says, verse 3, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything. So he's very thorough. Carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Theophilus is a Gentile. The word in Greek means lover of God. Luke, I want you to see this. Luke is writing his gospel to an individual. Now, he knows that it's going to be going to others. But this individual is a Gentile. What does that mean? Well, as, the, uh, as Christ died and was resurrected and ascended, he told his disciples, go be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost part. As the gospel spread... You, it began first with most of the folks believing in Jesus were Jewish believers. But as it spread, now there's Gentiles. And what do you see in a lot of Paul's letters in you know, uh, Ephesians? What does he have to write about in Ephesians 2? In Ephesians 4, he says, Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Why does he have to say that? Well, chapter 2, he spends a big chunk going, You guys, yeah, this is how the world divides you. But Jesus broke down that dividing wall. And he himself is your peace, your reconciler, the one who makes you one. Theophilus and other Gentile believers would have felt pressure at times or sort of the side-eye occasionally at church. Going, you know, I don't know if you jumped through enough hoops yet. I know you believed in Jesus, but there was, there was that stuff going on. And a guy like Theophilus would have the question, the unsettling question of, well, I believed in him. I thought I was in. Am I in or not? Okay, now that's a very simplified version of saying it. But Luke writes his gospel to a Gentile audience, first Theophilus, but to spill out, to say, no, you didn't miss it. He did come not just for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. Because that fits his message. He came for the outsider. In fact, you could say that um, what he's doing here, he says, so that you may know that knowing is kind of that, that reassuring knowing. I want you to be reassured, Theophilus, that you're not on the outs. Yes, you were an outsider, but you're, you're one of the ones Jesus came for to make you an insider. And so Luke writes his gospel to reassure believers and we'll see to surprise non-believers that in Jesus' kingdom, outsiders become insiders, and the self-assured righteous insiders unexpectedly will find themselves on the outs. Next slide, the key verse in Luke. He says, this is at the end of Zacchaeus, a tax collector. Remember, um, he says Zacchaeus was a wee little man. We sang that. Wee little man was he. Well, he also was a despised little man because he was a tax collector. That means he bilked his own people stuffed his own pockets at their expense and did it exorbitantly. But Jesus said, hey, I'm going to come to your house and eat. He's eating again with a tax collector and sinner. And because of his grace, not because of Zacchaeus getting his act together, it's Jesus' mercy and grace. And he says, now salvation has visited this house for the explanation of how in the world could Zacchaeus, an outsider, be on the inside for this is what the Son of Man came to do. To seek, there's his search, and to save, recovery, that which was lost. And what we're going to see today is not only is that his search, but that's what gets celebrated. We'll talk more about that next week. We get back to verse 11 in chapter 15. Let's zoom back in to this key chapter. Because that was the question in their minds. You can go to the next slide. What is God's attitude towards sinners? The sinners in the crowd are wondering. They're drawn to Jesus. They want to hear, would I have a shot or not? And the Pharisees and scribes with arms folded, fingers wagging, eyes rolling, back patting. They're also listening. What is God's attitude towards sinners? He tells the first two parables, and then he gets to this. 
chapter 15, verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. By the way, this will be in two acts, the younger son and then the older son. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, this would have just flabbergasted the original audience. It would have set them back. How dare the audacity of this younger son to go to his father, a Middle Eastern patriarch, and say, when do you get an inheritance? When dad croaks. This is another way of saying, I've been here, I've kind of been under you and whatever, but really all I'm after is my stuff. I want my part and I'm out of here. I'm done. I don't want you, Dad. I just want your stuff. And frankly, I could find and grasp after. I can, my, my quest is I'm going to go and I'm going to find life. But the original audience would have been, this, this is a, a total insult. It's an affront. It is, it's as, as if he's saying, it's fine with me if you're dead because you're dead to me already. I am going to go on the self-discovery self-indulging adventure of a lifetime. Well, a father at that point could have done lots of things, and the original audience would have been like, yep, son deserved it. He could have verbally dressed him down, ostracized him, whatever. He could have physically assaulted him. He could have kind of done whatever he wanted, and everyone would have said the kid had it coming. Ungrateful, you know, like uh, no respect. And the father in that culture could have done what he wanted. But notice what he does. He doesn't even have a conversation that we're told. It says, and he divided his property between them. Not just the young. This, this, because what happens with the younger also affects the older. Why? Because they're both going to receive an inheritance. Interestingly, the word property there, we get our word, you, you take biology class your sophomore year in high school. If you're lucky like me, you get a major in college, you can kind of wiggle out of those things. But he divided his, literally, he divided his life between them or among them. And in that culture, the older son, we've not met yet, but the older son would have gotten, in this case, two-thirds of the inheritance, the, the life and the younger son would have gotten one-third. Now, we also don't understand for them how tied to the land they were. This is basically to say, all we have is this land that produces our food, that produces livestock. I mean, it is its status in the, um, in the community. It's provision for our family. It's a way to kind of pass on so that my family after me doesn't starve, all of that. But he divides it. He goes, okay. I'll divide my life, and I'll give you your portion. The son liquidates it, got some cash in his pocket, dreams ahead, and he goes. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless, or some of your translations may say, wild living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and immediately started playing the slots and was losing like crazy. Started, you know, um, trying to take some girls out, trying to do this, indulge in this. We don't know what he was doing, but it was reckless, wild living. Think of, uh, of, of any beer commercial, if you will. He's trying to live that to the nth degree, and he is. But all of a sudden, there ain't nothing left. Not only that, but now that's in his control. Those are things he did, but now also things out of his control. A famine hits, and it was a great famine. So now he is definitely in need. And what does he do, verse 15? So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. This would have definitely gotten the original audience... Like, he's Jewish. You shouldn't be around pigs. You don't eat pigs. 
you, you, but he is now getting the lowest of the low, dirty Gentile job. And imagine his daddy was a respected patriarch in the community, had property, had land, had livestock, whatever they had. His life wasn't so bad. And now he's having to go beg for a job that no one would want. And even that, the next verse says, he looked at the pigs and said, these pigs are eating better than me. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, or when he came to his senses, it might say in yours, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. He's like, man, if I think about it back home, uh, we sort of had these, you know, tiers of slaves. And there were some that were just your, your bondservant slaves, and others were the next level of, they had some craft, some kind of thing they were in charge of on the property. He's like, those folks that, that kind of were employed, but on a daily basis, they, they have it way better than I have it right now. So he, he says, you know what, I need to do something. Verse 18, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And now he's on his way. He arose and came to his father. So he has a plan. And what I want you to know, we don't need to nitpick whether that was just true repentance or is he just like sorry for the consequences. Jesus wants that to probably not be fully settled within you. But what we can say is he recognizes his need. He acknowledges best shot I've got is to go back to my father and fall on his mercy. I believe this is a picture, Jesus is giving us a picture of repentance, which means a change of mind and a change of direction. He's going back. But now I want us to notice the son who's probably kind of rehearsing in his mind uh, with, I'm going to say, with a genuine repentance, like, Father, I'm not even worried. Just, just put me out with some of the hired servants. Like, he's probably, there's, a, there's some contrition. There's some, I don't need to look at my father in the eye or whatever, right? Luke, recording Jesus' parable, is very careful to let us know. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. Pause. Let's say we're the younger son. We've, we've, we've spent the inheritance. We've been a fool. We have been just neck deep in sin. We disrespected him. We wronged him. We're coming back. We don't know that he sees us yet on the horizon, but even as we're, I mean, what would we expect? What do you expect that the father, your father's look would be? Be at least a frown. Would he turn different shades of red and purple? When he was a long way off, the father saw him and he felt in his guts for his son. And then he does something a father in this time would have never done. There have been some moms that would have done it. Some children would have done it. But he ran. Middle Eastern fathers at that time, you don't run. You don't gird yourself up, show your legs, and run. He doesn't care what anyone else. He throws that thought away. Because it's only, I'm going to my son. And he ran and he embraced him. It really fell on his neck and he kissed him. This is a kiss of affection. There's no, well, you know, I was waiting on this day. I got some things to straighten out about you. Or how dare you even come back? None of that. He felt it in his guts and he ran unembarrassed and showered affection on his son. The son hasn't gotten a word out. This isn't in response to the clever wording of a son trying to get it right. The initiative is the father's initiative. It is not an earned response from the father. 
It is an initiated, mercy-only response. And then the son does try to, he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, the father didn't want to hear the speech. You can throw it away. And what does he tell them? Tells the servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. Why? For this, my son was dead. A lost someone, very valuable, my son, and he's alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The robe is for special occasions. It signified birthright. Again, he was saying, I'm not worthy to be a son. He says, here's my robe, the best one. The ring is a sign of authority. The family crest would have been on it. He's, not, he's saying, none of this business about being a hired servant or whatever, you're reinstated as a son. Sandals, that's a sign of sonship. Slaves didn't wear shoes. He probably came with no shoes on. And then the fattened calf, I love this. This would have been, they didn't eat meat much then. This would have been, though, one calf they would have put almost in its special own place, and they would have fattened that sucker up. For special occasions, once a year maybe, or some special occasion, something to really celebrate. He says, go get that one that we put away for an anticipation of a moment to celebrate. Notice the father's eyes were on the horizon. He'd been praying for, agonizing over, heartbroken for his son, knowing he was going to think it's going to be free living and he's going to run up against hard living and there's going to be an erosion of his soul and he just aches for his son and so he keeps looking and he keeps praying and he says we're going to keep this calf ready he says we got to celebrate that's the younger brother now the older brother <laughs> the older brother or you could call him the bitter brother he finds out about it. He was, ironically, this use of spacing that Jesus used in the parable, he's in the field. The younger brother, the sinner, one who squandered everything, is in the house. He's in the home. He's back in the family. The older brother, who's been the faithful good brother, is out in the field working his fingers to the bone, and he comes back, and he, and he hears music. He hears there's something going on. And he actually uh, is, is so <clears throat> agitated. I, I'm contextually saying that because the way it describes, he asks a servant, it's almost like he corners the servant saying, what's going on? Why is there music? Where's the party? Because here he was out working his fingers to the bone. If anyone should know about the family business, if there's a you know, semi-annual business party, he's supposed to be part of it. And he said to him, your brother's come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. We get our word hygiene there from that word. The idea is he's back and, and he's restored. But he was angry and he refused to go in. The insider brother who was working outside says, I will not go in. I will not be part of that celebration. And so, says verse 28, he was angry. His father then, what's the father do? I want you to notice, it's the same tenderness, it's the same compassion, it's the same ache for the older son the one who's bitter, the one who's grumbling, just like some in the audience that Jesus is telling the story to. And it says, the father went out to him and entreated him, meaning like, come on, let's go in. But he answered, look, and this is very much disrespectful. Look, these many years I've served you, I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. He says, look, I don't deserve this. I've been obeying you. I've been the good son. I've been the faithful one. Your farm's doing well because of me. Your name in the community is, 
because I'm keeping this family business afloat. I've never dishonored you. That guy cashed out on you, left you, even you know, says he went and squandered, devoured your property with prostitutes, and you've killed the fattened calf for him. Notice how important the fattened calf is because it symbolizes celebration. It symbolizes a special celebration. And I would tell you also it symbolizes an anticipation of that celebration because it was ready for such an occasion. But notice the father. He doesn't say, well, where do you get off with this attitude? You deserve this or deserve that, or I owe you this. He doesn't say that. The father says, son, and, and more literally, it's probably like, my child. He's so tender, even with this jerk of an older brother. He says, my child, you're always with me. All that's mine is yours, which is true. He could have thrown a party at any time. He could have had it at any time. He said it was fitting, though. This is right and fitting and appropriate to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is now alive. He was lost, and he was um, now been found. That's the older brother. What's Jesus trying to tell us? A couple things, and then I'll bring the worship team back up. The reason why I want to make sure we emphasize that this is the parable of the lost son. It's easy to see the lostness of the first one. Squandered the cash, disrespected dad, whether or not it was prostitutes or other just wild living. He just, he lived for himself. And this is a picture in our day of just self-discovery. Man, man, go find your adventure, go for the gusto, get it. That's easy to spot. But what we often dismiss is that they're both lost. One, ironically, was really close to the father in the house, and, and he, he was lost not because of his rottenness, but because of his goodness. He wasn't obeying the father and fulfilling what the father wanted because uh, he loved the father. It was to get something. In fact, what I want you to see, what I believe Jesus wants us to see, when we think of sin... In the younger brother and the older brother, they both want the stuff they can get from the father, but not the father. One wanted distance to the far country. The other one stayed real nearby and kept all of his living. He was morally upright, if you will. One is out there blowing and going for self. The other one has moral conformity, keeps it right here, nice and tight. But he's as far from the father in his heart as the boy who was far away. And our sin can be those of immorality and walking away from God, or it can be those of doing righteous things so that we can get things from God without having God. And both of those break the Father's heart, but the Father also has deep, deep love and compassion for both. And He initiates, and He goes to each son. What does this tell us? Well, the Father was searching for both, went searching for both, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. That is the heart of the Father. We can know that what matters most to God is that we matter most to Him, and then that we know how valuable we are to Him, that He would pursue us when we're not pursuing Him. To restore us to sonship, to daughtership. This tells us God's heart for sinners, that He values the loss. But this also confronts us with our own hearts. If you could put the last, that slide up. Because the question for them is, what's God's heart for sinners? What's heaven celebrate? Well, heaven celebrates. I think, I think that deep squat didn't work out. I don't know. <laughs> Hopefully he's okay. 
But notice, we don't know what happens with the older brother. The younger brother is restored. Jesus leaves that hanging because he wants the original audience and us to say, the heart of the father is for the lost. And some of us are in that spot right now. You are the prodigal son or daughter right now. You are that. You know, you know where you've been trying to play the game, one foot in, one foot out, or I'm both feet out. But know that the Father loves you deeply, that his heart is broken for you, and that he, he wants you to see, I'm not the one going, well, I can't wait to show you how wrong you were. No, in fact, um, this, this book here, Gentle and Lowly, I don't recommend it for everyone. It may be a little thick, but man, I just want you to hear the heart of Jesus for you and for me, which is pictured in the Father. His mercy, his, his initiation, his compassion for you. If you are a sinner like the younger or a sinner like the older. He says, when you, do, when you sin, do a thorough job of repenting. Rehate the sin all over again. Consecrate yourself afresh to God and his pure ways, but reject the devil's whisper that God's tender heart for you has grown a little colder, a little stiffer. God is not flustered by your sinfulness. His deepest disappointment is your tepid thoughts of his heart. Meaning, I don't think enough of God and his mercy and grace and love. He says, your waywardness does not threaten your place in the love of God. And then, speaking of sonship, uh, this is my favorite phrase, he says, God's already executed everything needed to secure your eternal happiness, and he did that while you were an orphan, while you were a sinner. Nothing can now unchild you. That younger brother experienced it, and the father wanted the older brother to experience it as well. Would you guys come and lead us? The only way that's possible is because of the cost. You see, the older brother, part of why he was angry was he was enduring the cost. He was the one still working the family business while the brother went out and squandered it all. But Jesus is the perfect older brother. He's the one who for the joy set before him, for the celebration that could be anticipated, endured the cross for you and for me. And he wants us to know that that is his heart for you. When you and I sin, Remember, he eats with tax collectors and sinners. He dines with them. He dines with us. He wants you and me to know his compassion and mercy. Let's stand. And Eric and the team will lead us. Thought Buddy was going to talk a little longer. I'm pivoting um, based on the message. I think um, I just wanted to go back and sing God is so good. We sing God is so good. Thank you. 
pillars or we, do we cross our arms? Do we see them as they should be outsiders? I just want to share with you how encouraged I was this past week in this very thing. Multiple ones of you, including some of our kids, shared last week at the end of the message, we talked about loving God and loving our neighbor, including those on the outside. I just gave a simple exercise that I got from Andy Crouch that he said when he walked through an airport, he just reminded himself, I need to, instead of looking at people like, oh, okay, they rank here with me or that, just see them and say, image bearer in his mind, image bearer. Can't tell you how encouraged I was to hear that our 56ers were talking about that on Wednesday, hearing a few other kids saying, I practice saying image bearer. I think we can practice and celebrate and have our search match the Father's search for the outsider simply by doing that. Keep it to yourself, don't be creepy, okay? But just as you walk by, you see somebody and man, they get on your last nerve to say image bearer, image bearer. Lord, help me love them like you do because you value them. It says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how we know, he says, the, the love of God demonstrated. Be reminded of that for our own hearts and then extend it to your fellow image bearers this week.